This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And with brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Amorphous Threats. Barrett's Privateers. Haunted West. And The Dead Man's Hand. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut, where the walls are hung with... Red curtains that seem to billow and bend. That's not good. The miniatures, I think they moved when I wasn't looking at them. And Robin, did you cut yourself on those dice or have they always been covered in blood? Once more, the Doritos are cool ranch. We're in a horror manifestation of the gaming hut. And specifically, we're in a horror manifestation of the gaming hut because often Horror games deal with manifestations, look what I did there, of some ongoing horror, referred to often colloquially as the big bad. But in many cases, the big bad is not a singular bad. It is just a badness, right? It is uh, the fact that the membrane is thin in the world of the esoterrorists, that Carcosa even exists in the world of the Yellow King, that Cthulhu is underneath the ocean. You can't stop him, right? Because he's Cthulhu. Yeah. What's going on? And so the question is, how do you build devices into a scenario to allow the PCs to take conclusive action to end the story? And Robin, since you asked this question, I'm hoping to gosh that you at least have an answer for us. Right. Well, I'm going to start with the obvious answer. 
And then we're going to come up with other alternatives. And the idea is to, you know, have some way to conclude a scenario, if right. not the campaign. If you conclude mm-hmm. the campaign, you might actually be able to do something about Cthulhu. Nobody ever does that. But, you know, maybe you can shut off the gate to Carcosa or what have you. Or it's just the threat is still ongoing and your character's story concludes when the <laughs> series concludes. Or someone leaves the group and you just peter out and start a new game. Yep. Um, but for any given scenario, you want to have some sense of having concluded the story. So the most obvious one is there is a human agent, a person who is manipulating the cosmic dread or the Carcosan energy or the thinness of the membrane or the psychic residue of historical murders. And if you then deal with that antagonist, that villain, you defeat that person, you have successfully concluded the story and the mystery. And you can do that a whole bunch of times. That works very efficient. But what if you don't want to do that every single time over the course of a long-running scenario? So that's where we uh, come in in terms of trying to find other ways, other things that you can do to wrap a scenario. Now, they might still have a specific human antagonist, but it might not necessarily be that you want the defeat of that person or the revelation of that person being carried off by the authorities or whatever it is to be the ending of every single mystery, you can do it a whole bunch of times. Uh, You know, police procedurals generally end with the arrest of a suspect. So that's not, you know, inherently boring, but uh, we're going to try and mix it up a bit after this. So Ken, I've cleverly set this up to give the obvious answer. What's the first of the many inobvious answers that we can give to this question? Well, I mean, the first inobvious answer is kind of the obvious reversal of your answer rather than set up a human foe who must be thwarted, brought to justice, thrown into a pit, whatever, set up a human victim whose salvation is the victory in the game. And whether or not you've done anything about the veil, you've at least gotten this nice man out of the house that sits on the, you know, nexus of nine murder lays or whatever, or you've broken the curse, the ancestral curse on this other fella, or you've figured out that this lady has got uh, Innsmouth blood. And so you've, you know, maybe, you know, busted up the deep ones that came sniffing around. And then, you know, the, the game ends with you proudly packing all of her belongings on a van to move to Wyoming, where there's no salt water within 4,000 miles in any direction. And uh, that that's sort of the best you can do as a win. And so it's not identify a singular human threat, but preserve a singular human target, obviously, hopefully one who's sympathetic or uh, interests or connects to the players in some other way, because otherwise it's just sort of random that you showed up and fixed someone's haunted house. But, you know, that's the sort of inverse of that story is, is making the human center of it the, you know, victim as opposed to the monster. Right. And and so that could be not just a physical rescue, but that could be an exorcism. That could be, uh, and you can even go with the old, you know, they're dead already, but you can show them that they're dead and, and let them move on to the, the great beyond. So that's right. a way to save a ghost. Uh, so that works, which segues into the other obvious answer to this, which is that the there's an inhuman threat, a monster. He's not the main creature in the entire uh, cosmology. He's not Cthulhu, but he could be a spawn of Cthulhu, could be Wilbur Waitley. And so that's also pretty simple and straightforward is that there is a monster on the rampage. He's either, you know, spontaneously manifested through the uh, membrane or uh, possibly, you know, the human antagonist summons the creature and lasts just long enough to be killed in the backstory. 
and mm-hmm. your investigation of, you know, why you find uh, this person uh, splattered all over their basement could be, well, they, they called up something and then they failed to put it down. And they, then you have to go yeah. and, you know, find the creature. And that can also involve the mystery of finding out not just where the creature is, but how to successfully kill it. Because, you know, inhuman creatures have a way of being much more powerful than people. So, uh, and that brings us to the device we borrow from horror fiction and put in the Esoterrace, which is there's a special means of dispatch so that discovering what it is that kills the creature can be the step to then going and finally killing it. And a, you know, a confrontation with the monster, again, classic horror ending right there. Yeah. And I guess the fourth in our list of obvious answers is that the player character's conclusive action is to save themselves. And that's sort of your gauntlet scenario, your existential horror scenario, your standard, um, you know, going into the haunted house type scenario that the only people at threat are the player characters and the nature of the threat is one that must either be sussed out and fixed in sort of your classic exorcism monster hunt mode, or you just get out of the bad place and resolve. I'm never going to go back through Dunwich. That was horrible. Someone should put up a sign that says (laughs) warning horror here. And that's your, your conclusive end is to leave the place that uh, the veil is thinnest or that, you know, there's all those angry ghosts or whatever. And, just know that you've survived. That's your uh, conclusive action. Right. I find that that can play really interestingly into a horror game, especially if the players are used to taking more conclusive action. It helps to reinforce the ambient nature of the threat. If at one point their action is, you know, as uh, Jack Benny says, stop doing that. Right. Right. Um, and the trick there is to make that an exciting sequence that they yeah. don't just drive out of town, mm-hmm. but that they drive to the city limits and then the shrieking wraiths hit the barrier that prevents them from existing outside of the, uh, the village. And you see them dissipate and then reform and scream and smash the fourth barrier with their wraithy little fists. And that gives you a sense of accomplishment. And mm-hmm. so that you're, uh, there has to be a very specific dividing line between, uh, not escaped and escaped where you know that you're out. And that brings us to a variant of that, which is you somehow uh, plugging up the hole, you uh, taking action. You don't actually physically attack the creatures, but you attack their way of getting out and getting at people. So you're trapping the uh, force or what have you. So that's a classic in the you know first edition Call of Cthulhu, famously in the GM advice. The victory could be, you know, you just blow up the mine where the, the monsters are. And that <laughs> is also a classic uh, ending that uh, works and of course can have suspense because you know if you've got a detonator and you're going to blow up the top of the mine something's going to come at you and try and prevent you from you know pushing the plunger and that can also be you know something blowing up and then whether you walk away from it in slow motion or not is also very dramatic and very clear and and conclusive as you say yes. yeah the um the lightning bolt, the cleansing fire. I mean, there's lots of classic, you know, endings like that in horror literature and in horror gaming. The lightning bolt is generally seen as something of a cop out, but you can certainly set it up if you've got some sort of lightning calling magic or just a magical, uh, lightning rod, like in Ray Bradbury that, uh, summons the, you know, the lightning to thwart the haunting horror or whatever it is. There's lots it's, of it's possibilities. It's not a deus if you set it up so the player characters can activate it. Right. Can, you know, hit the, big red please deus come machina at us button the the other thing that i guess that you 
then need to sort of keep in mind is that for all of these, you know, conclusive actions to end the story, it's necessary either for, you know, an ongoing campaign or for a sense of proper foreboding for the action to then be proven to be not quite conclusive. And that can be either just as spore in the next adventure. It can be a callback. It can be a, well, you blow up the mine, but that thing's still alive down there. And maybe there's another exit to the mine. And that provides the in-game evidence, I guess I want to say, of the nature of the threat being ongoing. And it's not that, well, we killed that deep one. I'm sure Cthulhu will never bother this seacoast town again. That doesn't seem likely. But, you know, in the moment, it was great catharsis to kill that deep one. But, you know, intellectually, you've just kicked it down the road, reinforcing that either as a side bit in another adventure or as a sequel or something else. That is, of course, the classic horror movie ending where it says the end and the blob is all frozen. And then the question mark comes up bum, 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 and you see the little drippy bit coming off yeah. the, the ice or the hand, hand comes up out of up. the grave. And that, of course, is another classic horror moment. And players who are in a horror campaign, I would posit, do not necessarily demand constant conclusive action to end the story. What they demand is a satisfying end to that uh, sub-narrative within the ongoing campaign. And satisfying ends come in all manner of different versions. And it, it might even just be so much as the satisfying end is that, you know, granddad and granddaughter were reunited we were very happy to see that emotional beat that reflects and is not necessarily countered by, but we understand that the actual, you know, rent in the veil only got larger. Uh, and so the, the sense of winning the tiny victory and the knowledge of the ongoing uh, struggle, ongoing conflict, ongoing badness is, you know, I would not say that it is something you can leave out of a horror game and then, expect to keep the horror part going. You turn right. into sort of a, a dark adventure game, which is great. Many dark adventure games can be great. Buffy the Vampire Slayer did super great, successful dark adventure for many, many seasons, but it's not horror qua horror, right? Right. And also an amorphous threat can be the entire threat as long as there's a way for the player characters to deal with it. So in one memorable Yellow King session with my own group, the threat was day never came. It just kept being night and they knew they had something to do with it. And mm -hmm. so that, you know, sort of began to edge into disaster movie territory. Right. So it wasn't about fighting monsters per se. It was about, you know, ending the state of the anomaly. And if the anomaly is clear cut enough, having the sun come up, that's pretty conclusive. Yeah. I think that that is a version of, and I think disaster movie is a great note to hit on it. Uh, that is a version of the sort of, you know, player survival as conclusive action uh, story, because uh, I, I often sort of mentally class that with sort of travelogue games in which, you know, the, the goal is not really to fight the lizard men. It's to see how cool the elf city is that you're saving from the lizard men and any encounters or involvements or investments you can build into the characters that reinforce the coolness of the elf city is what the campaign or what that adventure is secretly really about. And in a horror game, you don't have to make it secret because, of course, the experience of weird, unknowable horror, whether it be a, a night that never ends or a, you know, um, ongoing uh, rending of reality in one area or that road that keeps going into the woods and twisting around and you never get out of it. Those sorts of experiences, which are absolutely core fundamental to horror, 
they don't really lend themselves to. And then uh, we fixed it by turning the switch from evil to less evil. Right. And, and so I feel like that disaster movie, you know, when uh, at the end of a disaster movie, they didn't like unvolcano the town. It's just that they and the other C-list actors all survived and, and were happy. And the mean one died in the lava. And it's like, yay. Right. Uh, you mentioned reality horror. And in that one, the conclusive victory or escape is that you restore reality to what it was before or you wake up from the hideous dream and then of course always there's a little bit of but is it really restored here's the Mm -hmm. thing right so but again it's a a big finish that isn't just a fight against an antagonist and speaking of finishes i think this segment ken is finished but Mm. i bet on the other side of this commercial there's another one indeed there is Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. Once more, we see the string quartet preparing to warm up in the corner. We see the canapes being served by impeccably dressed staff. And we know that we are walking into that most elevated, that most noble of huts, the culture hut. And I think I'll just take, well, this, this canapé is just uh, some sort of maple roll. I'm not really sure. There's a lot of sawdust on the floor of the culture hut. <laughs> yeah, just be grateful it isn't hardtack. That man. wasn't a string quartet. That was a jug band. Oh, my goodness. We're in a folk culture hut. Possibly a more exciting culture hut. Certainly one where the drinks will be stronger than the regular culture hut. And who has led us here but beloved Patreon backer Joshua Hillerup. And Joshua requests... How would you, and I'm suspecting Joshua means Robin, but I'll take a swing at it, nerd trope and gamify the classic Canadian folk song, Barrett's Privateers. And I guess at the beginning we have to say, it's not 
a folk song in the strict letter of the term folk song because it was written by a single identifiable folk, but it is in certainly the yeah. spirit. Well, let's not have the what is folk music hut right. because no. that's a very long and very tedious hut. And and I personally am happy to believe that Stan Rogers, uh, not to give it away, is folk just like the Red River Lumber Company of Minnesota is folk. I'm willing right. to say that this and Paul Bunyan are both folklore and uh, – Let's get to it, Robin. This is your patrimony, for God's sake. Right. Unload. And in this segment, my challenge is going to be to make fun of my fellow countrymen before Ken beats me to it. <laughs> so, this, uh, as you suggest, uh, this is a uh, song written in 1976 by a, a singer-songwriter in the folk vein named Stan Rogers. I'm going to start with my initial confession, which is that Stan Rogers is a little too far on the other side of the singer-songwriter folk barrier for me to be <laughs> someone who I listen to for pleasure. So I had to actually, you know, dial up this on Spotify and listen to it for the first time. Stan Rogers is sort of an iconic uh, figure in Canada as, you know, sort of emblematic of kind of Maritimes culture. And he also is unfortunately known uh, for uh, having died very young because he was in a 1983 plane fire accident on the tarmac in Cincinnati and died in uh, at the age of 33. Uh, this song he wrote in 1976, and it's a, a neo-shanty, as it were. It's uh, based uh, on fictional but credible events. So it's a, a narrative song, as you, as you might guess. And as we describe the events listed in the song, you will find it, as I do, increasingly hilarious that this is regarded in some circles as sort of a, a patriotic Canadian song, a big drinking song, <laughs> and the, the unofficial anthem of the Royal Canadian Navy, because this is a song about horrible defeat, about uh, why you should never go to sea and uh, getting blown up by Americans. So this yes. is the, the most Canadian possible uh, thing to be a, a popular uh, a drinking song. So at any rate, uh, the events of this song are set in 1778, and a a young fisherman in Nova Scotia is convinced to join a privateer mission. And this is, there's much, much is Canadian about this song. Nothing is more Canadian than the uh, idea that they, we will cruise the seas for American gold and we will fire no guns. Yes, we're, we're going to be pacifistic pirates or privateers, privateers. Mm -hmm. we're, we're licensed to go into this. We have it's, a letter of Mark. We have a letter of Mark. Now the narrator should realize that he's getting into a bad situation immediately because he gets aboard the antelope, which is the scummiest vessel I've ever seen, as the song goes. I would say young fishermen turn around, but no, they uh, all head down uh, in this uh, ship to, the, to Montego Bay and a bloody great Yankee heaves into view. This is a merchant vessel, which is engaged in the sinister mission of being full of gold, mm -hmm. but their uh, ship classic is, uh, Yankee behavior, by the way, classic I'll just Yankee say behavior. That. now it may well be since they're in the Caribbean with a ship full of gold, that gold is ill gotten, but the singer never, the, 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 the character never evinces any sort of, we're doing this. <laughs> the character for the never has a chance to find out. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it takes them a long time to even approach the vessel. And it turns out they're wildly outgunned. See all American and Canadian discourse and everyone dies on the antelope uh, with the uh, Captain Barrett uh, dying most heroically and decisively of all. And uh, the narrator loses his legs. And then it flashes forward to 1784 when the narrator has finally arrived on the pier in Halifax, Nova Scotia, yearning to get to Sherbrooke, Nova Scotia, his hometown. So it, in 
again, this just keeps getting more Canadian. It's like it ends. He's not even home yet. He's just sort of on the dock kind of near home and yearning to get all the way home. So that tells you a lot about our, our country, that this is a, uh, a, a favorite drinking song in the, in the Maritimes and in the Navy. And uh, now our task, Ken, how, how can we possibly make anything interesting or role-playing like about a naval battle and privateers and a, a ship full of uh, gold? I would have to say our unnamed narrator does he have a brother who goes seeking vengeance to get that uh, <laughs> to suddenly become American a Decemberist gold? song? And does he get his legs blown off as well? <laughs> yes, you have. Well, if it's an American vengeance song, if it's a Decemberist, then he gets his vengeance. If it's a Canadian vengeance song, I guess no, he does not. He just winds up on the dock, just not next to his sure. brother. Yes, yeah. I mean the it, maybe it's my algorithm. Maybe it's just the beautiful way the universe works. But when I went looking for Barrett's Privateers to hear how it goes. I want to say number one or two on my YouTube search was video of the American Navy playing it as they leave uh, Halifax Harbor. It's like some <laughs> big American frigate or something is blasting it off the deck. So apparently it's also very popular in the American Navy, at least when they're in Nova Scotia. So, you know, uh, hands across the border and I'm all gonna that. I'm going to say somebody's Canadian brother-in-law told him about it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Americans like, aren't, usually, aren't usually tuned enough into Canadian culture to... to make that kind of sophisticated joke that kind of that kind of bit well you know maybe the second unless there's a turncoat involved the second or third time they were in halifax maybe one of the sailors was uh in a bar and heard this being sung and said hold on wait a second that's like a late night comedy whenever there's a great canadian burn you know the canadian on the staff wrote it the staff wrote it exactly the self self-destructive but the um yeah i mean the just Going forward, it's, I mean, it's a story and it's an amusing one. I mean, obviously the good guys win. Capitalism is preserved. Someone lives to tell the tale. What, what couldn't be better than this story? And, you know, it was on the king's birthday that they embarrassed themselves. How, how great is this? So the story itself seems more like backstory to something else that's happening. I mean, I suppose that. The fact that they're sailing down to Jamaica, as you say, in the Caribbean implies that that load of gold in the American vessel. And by the way, it was very nice of us to, I guess, shout over the side after steving in the uh, antelope with one with one gun. Yes, we were carrying gold. You were right. (laughs) Bye. Gotta go. (laughs) Well, that that, that was they they couldn't play Barrett's Privateers. Because it hadn't been written yet. So they had to say that. They had to say, yes, we're, you know, ask for us in Newport. We're the big ship full of gold next to all the other big ships full of gold. Although I guess in 78, Newport was just about to be taken by the hated British. So they must have gone to somewhere else. Anyways, I mean, the story looks like a backstory or it looks like a, a story that happens around something else. And, you know, the notion being that, you know, either the antelope has, uh, gone through the story that the, player characters were on and then they get off the boat in Halifax in 1778. And, uh, they're like, well, I'm just glad we survived that horrific adventure that left this ship a ruin. Oh my God. Captain Barrett, the NPC is, he's bringing in a new crew. Let's get the hell away from here. And then, so you could do it as sort of a one shot little thing. I think that if you're, you know, trying to nerd trope it, is there a supernatural component besides just being a terrible ship up against a better ship? You could sort of, uh, in the, in the way that, um, magnificently master and commander becomes a techno thriller. You could maybe make this a techno thriller. If you say that the American ship has got 
some kind of even better gun than you thought or that it's lines. But the, the, the ship is described as having uh, terrible lines and handling badly. So that doesn't really work. You could maybe argue that the, you know, Americans have, you know, mastered the, the pirate's curse on the gold and they're using that to uh, pirate ghosts are laying the cannons that obliterate the antelope. But I feel like to make that happen, it has to be the sort of thing that is in the background of a story and you are now modern day Canadian investigators and you're like, did you know that Stan Rogers did not actually write this song that he heard it in a bar on a, on the waterfront that he could never find again. And this song is actually, you know, key to some sort of activity or, or event. And uh, that the, you know, if you wanted to be a little a Canadian version of national treasure, where right. the treasure is, you get your legs back. Or right. Like, you know, or the treasure is you find that cargo of gold. Yeah. And if you wanted to be ghoulish, you could say that the, the, the spirit that he, you know, stole that song from hunted him down. And, and that's why he died tragically young. Uh, maybe you don't say that. Maybe you just leave it, you know, in the background implied. But the notion being that now it's the modern day and you're trying to piece together where this giant cargo of magical gold is. And so you have to find the descendant of the survivor. You have to find a descendant of Captain Barrett. You have to find the the bits of the antelope that washed ashore in Montego Bay and are now decorating some, you know, a beachside saloon and somehow put together the the whole of the center of this mystery, which is, you know, if we assume that Captain Barrett is not Canadian, but is actually competent, he must have had some goal, some plan, some scheme that was thwarted, because in theory, he would know after day 62 that his sloop is not going to survive a high wind, much less an American cannon, but he still persists. Something's going on with Captain Barrett that right. he wanted to get done in 1778 that maybe would have, you know, changed the course of the war. Maybe he's got, you know, some sort of um, uh, master magical plan to awake the Kraken or something. I don't know. Right. Well, speaking of turncoats, my assumption, of course, is that Barrett is an American and that he has lured all of these fine, uh, innocent moon calf Nova Scotian fishermen down for a human sacrifice. Right. And therefore your job as the, uh, as the brother of the narrator and his friends is to go and, and find them and find, you know, that the, the gold did not acquire the magic that would then power American capitalism unless there was a blood sacrifice. And if you're going to get a blood sacrifice, you know, Nova Scotian fishermen, you need innocence. And so right. that's, that's who you get. And so that you're uh, then trying to track down this now uh, magically numinous blood gold and uh, uh, prevent it from, you know, making the world uh, infinitely worse. And, so, and and although Barrett was smashed like a carton of eggs, the magic lets him resurrect. And so he can sort of wander around as a, a blood salt golem thing or something. Yes, that and, this was his uh, monstrous apotheosis. And uh, he's going to, you know, pose as a, a rock ribbed uh, New England stern, never seen shipping magnet. And it's all about you know, him setting up his, uh, his shipping fortune so that mm -hmm. you, uh, there you have someone, someone concrete, uh, to get uh, vengeance on because obviously it was his bad idea all along. And, uh, you can then go and, uh, uh, finishing him off and make sure that this, uh, evil gold is either, you know, exercised or, or at least taken back to, uh, Halifax, if not Sherbrooke, where it can do no harm. Now, um, I do want to say we have a Captain Barrett, no known first name. Seems to die in 1778, but maybe doesn't. Uh, there is a classic 
character in the history of magic named Francis Barrett, who sort of blows up out of nowhere and publishes a textbook called The Magus that basically holds bits of other magic books and uh, and sort of, you know, lays the powder for the Rosicrucian explosion in the 1840s and 50s. And we don't know a lot about Francis Barrett's history. Maybe he was born in 1780, but maybe he was reborn in 1780 as a blood golem. I mean, we don't know. So if there's a connection between Francis Barrett and Captain Barrett, maybe Captain Barrett was in fact also a dupe and that, you know, Barrett father is the sort of, you know, Doc Savage's dad. He's like, okay, we're going to, you know, create this magical perfect son. And that means I have to, you know, have my older uh, son that I don't like as much killed in the magic. And that'll go into my little baby son, Francis. And Francis will use that energy to, uh, to become the greatest magician and briefly balloonist in uh, British history. And so it's actually not an American plot, Robin. It's the hated British using the Canadian boys <laughs> as blood sacrifice. How's that? Well, that, that allows everybody to uh, pick the secret nationality of, uh, of the villain uh, in this tale as you see fit. And uh, having uh, made this available to, uh, to everyone, I think uh, we can now get on undoubtedly a very safe non-scummy vessel that will take us across the river that is this commercial to the hut that lays on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Ward this podcast from the amorphous threat of underfunding by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Michael Kewell, Ian Carlson, Dreaming Johnny, Alexander Zimmerman, and Carl Schmidt. time once more for Among My Many Hats. This is a segment in which the covert self-promotion of this podcast becomes overt self-promotion, and we talk about a project that uh, one of us has worked on, and this time we're here to talk about Haunted West. That's for, uh, Chris Spivey's game from his company, Darker Hue Studios, and it is now out in beautiful, shiny, delicious PDF format. Print version's coming soon. It's a, a beautifully mounted production, and Haunted West is a weird West game. Its point of distinction from other games is its uh, social awareness, so it is very much about 
uh, centering the narratives of previously excluded groups when we look at the history of the West, and it nerd tropes actual uh, history in creating its uh, a weird cowboy atmosphere and therefore is very much in the wheelhouse of Ken and Robin listeners. So much so, Ken, that you worked on it. So I uh, did. Extol it further. Alrighty. I uh, was brought on initially to write the adventure for Haunted West, and I wrote an adventure called Night of the Aerostat, the title being, of course, a tribute to the Wild Wild West episode titles, and the aerostat being the secret aerostat, the secret airship being built in Sonora, California, by a crew of mysterious Germans. And I thought, well, if you can't make a story out of that, uh, you're not even trying. So I had the mysterious aerostat become a tulpa, and I moved the Germans to Groom Lake, Nevada. And then I looked around and said, what's in the area of Groom Lake, Nevada that I can put a story at? I found the town of Pioche, or Pioche, uh, Nevada, and decided that was a pretty westerny kind of a place. So good fun had by all, I think. Right. So you wrote the adventure, and uh, then you uh, were then asked to do the gear chapter. Now, uh, it should be noted that unlike Chris's previous book, this has a new purpose-built system. It doesn't use basic role-playing, there's no gumshoe stats, but it has the Uroboros system. And so this is where we sort of segue into discussing uh, things of interest to uh, other freelancers or possible freelancers, because this is something that happens quite a lot, is that you are asked as a freelancer to add something to a new core game, and you are uh, both learning the rules and developing them as well. So some games are the product of one person. Uh, this is the product of many, many stalwarts. Uh, you're among them. So how do you go about taking the existing rules as they exist, presumably in a fairly early state, and then turning that into a, a gear chapter? Well, I mean, at the state that I was doing it specifically, the rules were relatively similar, and they're still not unsimilar to BRP. And one of the things about the Ouroboros system is that there's a lot of different ways that you can play things out, that it's sort of different systems within itself. But the gear chapter, fortunately, is mostly just, here's a thing, here's what it costs in 1870, and then sometimes there's special rules for it, but I was able to sort of give, well, here's how it would work in BRP, Chris. You put it into uh, into Ouroboros when you've got it uh, hammered down, because at the time I was writing the gear system, I don't think that the Ouroboros system had been completely nailed. And when I was doing the adventure, which I did, I think as Chris was writing the core engine, it was very much just write the adventure like a gumshoe adventure. And if it needs mechanics, I'll put them in. Here's a, a, a sort of a very basic sketch. So I was able to say, well, it'll, you know, the characters, the NPCs will need these sorts of stats. And then, you know, here's an opportunity to roll or to test or whatever. So it, it began in a relatively abstract way. And Chris was, you know, obviously he didn't want to wait until he'd gotten his engine, you know, absolutely nailed down to get the book done because then it wouldn't have been done until next year. So a lot of it was just, you know, he's a good enough designer and he's familiar enough with Gumshoe and with BRP that if I sort of wrote the thing in a hybrid of those, he would be able to pull it into Ouroboros. And that happened both with the adventure and with the gear chapter. So that, that means that the gear chapter then is largely an exercise in research mm -hmm. and uh, learning about the guns and how the guns work. And so as being 
part of a, a team of designers, often you are given a very sort of narrow slice of things to work on, and you are uh, relying on the fact that the developer and uh, lead designer, in this case, uh, Chris, is going to take all of these disparate elements from different people and fuse them all together into something that uh, makes sense and is playtestable and, and works fine, uh, that you're not uh, you didn't have to go and play test the, the gun rules, for example. No. So you had to uh, then learn about guns. And again, I guess sort of sketch out this one is shootier than this other one. And, uh, you know, I assume there are sort of placeholders of, you know, this should be a special ability of, of this weapon and so forth. Yeah. I mean, with most guns, the special ability is it's a gun. It shoots people. <laughs> Th- this was not intended to be a sort of, you know, gun crazy engine in which you know, tiny differences in the weapon really come in and play. There's, you know, slight differences in damage, that sort of thing. Right. Because the, the, the genre trope in the Western, whether talking Western literature or movies is that it's the person right. who is superb, not the weapon, right? It's not that, you know, that you win. Uh, well, well, until they unveil the Gatling gun, there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of sequences where a Gatling gun is unveiled. And that is sort of about the end of the West run away or, Individual expertise doesn't matter. War is about to become industrialized. And so this is sort of, a, I guess we're getting to research and material culture is there's a lot of uh, information, I guess, out there. But is it all in one easy place? Was there a, a reference that you could point to? Oh, oh, goodness, no. I mean, one of the secret skills that I, I think you have in this era is that a lot of this sort of thing has been done. So I own... Of course, the uh, great Kenzerin company Western game Aces and Eights, it has a gear chapter. I own Western Hero, it has a gear chapter. I own GURPS Old West, it has a gear chapter. So much of the initial sorting things into boxes has been done, and then it's just a matter of reconciling the differences in those chapters with my own research when I need to, and uh, with the actual historical listed information in, for example, the, you know, um, it isn't the Sears robot catalog, but there's like a, a mail order catalogs from this whole period. And you, if you want to know what it costs to buy a crinoline, you just look in the back of that catalog and it costs, you know, not a ton of money to buy a crinoline. And so much of it is just sort of trying to build what it looks like, you know, for a given weapon or for a given bit of equipment you know, what that sort of feels like in existence. So if you are, you know, a a middle-class person, I went to some degree of effort to find out what is a middle-class person in the old West wear, and then just list all that in middle-class clothing so that you have, you know, a sense of, am I just wearing a a linen, you know, undershirt or am I wearing a, what, what am I wearing? What's going on? You know, and once you start diving into this, of course, you can go as deep as you want. Just the lore on the Stetson hat alone is, you know, all manner of different possibilities. So when I, you know, write up the Stetson, I mentioned that it's not all the same hat, that there's, you know, a variety of different hats, you know, mentioned they're waterproof. Yes. Speaking of many hats. Yes, exactly. This this is the first many hats uh, segment where we've talked about hats. We've talked about many hats. And so the, um, uh, you know, there's a difference between a Stetson hat made out of beaver felt that's the best and most expensive kind of, of Stetson versus one that's made out of Nutria 
felt, which are sort of like big guinea pigs. And, you know, that was, that was in existence in the seven, in the 1870s. And you'd say, you know, I, I need myself a Stetson, but I can't afford a fancy Stetson. I'll just wear this, this lower end Stetson and it, it gets the job done. So there's no, you know, uh, practical difference in terms of rules between wearing a Nutria Stetson and a Beaver Stetson, except maybe you can more plausibly pretend to be a rich cattleman in a con game if you have a fancier hat. We don't but cotton to Nutria Stetsons right yeah, here. It's, oh, it's just wearing a Nutria Stetson, obviously. Just some sort of uh, road scum. Uh, you you know, that that's a play hook, not a rules hook. And I feel like really the job of a gear chapter is to provide play hooks as well as support the mini game that is shopping that everybody loves anyway in a game like this. You know, you have $200, spend it well. You know, that's good fun. You know, there's whole video games about it by now. So that that was sort of the job was to take, you know, the the catalogs, take the prior art, and then my own understanding of, well, none of this showed up in the prior art and it's hard to find in the catalog and I have to dig through and find out, you know, what is um, a little Bible that you would carry around? What, what's that going to cost? Things like that that are, you know, sort of part of the world, but again, don't really have a, a real um, rules equivalent. And some of this is I wrote down Lariat and then, you know, Chris not only provided the little Lariat rule for Robberos, he then went and looked up cool things you can do with a Lariat and puts it in as a sidebar. So it's not that I provided Chris, you know, a the, the gear chapter that you see, you know, part of all of these books is development. And Chris wanted to take the game and uh, put it in. And of course, one of the funny things when I got my copy is, you know, when, you know, Chris hired me, he hired me for a limited set number of words uh, because I'm expensive. And then I said, well, here's where we are with those words. And he says, all right, do 2000 more words. And I did it. So I, I sent him a relatively tight I thought, you know, all the, all the hits gun list. And and now when I get it, the gun chapter is like three times as long as the one I turned in, because of course, Chris, like me, is an American and said, <laughs> Oh, there's not enough guns in this chapter. <laughs> and so, right. you know, he just went and he added more guns, which is great. Well, and if you want players to learn history, put it in the gun section. Yeah. Right. And that was, and that was another one of the fun things that I could do. One of the things that I wrote was the, you know, various speeds of the vehicles. Because, uh, you know, buying transportation is part of it. And how fast does the train go is an important question. And, you know, in that, you compare that to human speed. And I just, in the research, discovered that uh, the army tested a Pawnee scout named Kuta Wakotsu uh, Lehulashar. And they tested him and he ran the four-minute mile. He broke the four minute mile in 1877, you know, suck it, Roger Bannister. And then, you know, just sneak that into the gear chapter. And that's a, that's a fun, that's a fun fact. Right. Well, speaking of the speeds of vehicles, it's time for us to get our train tickets, get on a train and uh, head uh, across the trestle to uh, the next segment uh, where we will continue our old Western theme. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF 
or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivy, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once again to uh, trudge along a uh, dusty street into a saloon and upstairs to the parlor of the consulting occultist, who this time around is wearing... A beaver Stetson, not a Nutria Stetson, because he's waiting for beloved Patreon backer Ian Carlson to ask, what is the occult significance behind Wild Bill Hickok's dead man's hand? And if, say, if you were inspired by some great mind to run an unknown army's campaign set in Dakota Territory in 1876, what other elliptonic, Fordian, or symbolic stratospheric shenanigans might one look at for inspiration? Well, I mean, uh, Wild Bill Hickok is one of the legendary uh, gunslingers in American Old West history. One of the names that we still remember, not least because of his famous dead man's hand. He got into lawmanning for a while, did that until about 1871 when he shot a deputy by mistake. That filled him with guilt, logically. And so he basically turned to uh, marketing his image and playing cards and one of the ways you won at cards in the Old West was to have a reputation as someone who would shoot you if you cheated. And that turned out to work about as well as you'd expect. So he is in the gold mining boom town of Deadwood. And he arrives there in July of 1876 with his friend, Calamity Jane Cannery. We don't know to what extent their friendship was deeper than that because we only have Calamity Jane's memoirs to go by. And she was... Like everyone else in the Old West, an errant liar. So anyway, <laughs> while Bill is playing cards, that's basically his job at this point. He goes to saloon number 10. He uh, plays some cards. He beats uh, a guy named Jack McCall. Again, accuses McCall of cheating. After, you know, that discussion is had, McCall storms out. Hickok is the big winner. August 2nd, the next day, he goes back to the saloon. He sits down. His normal seat is with his back to the wall. That seat is taken. The guy who has it is like, I don't know why I should get shot in the back of the head instead of you, Wild Bill Hickok. And Hickok, he wants to play the game. He doesn't want to make, make a big deal out of it. So he sits with his back to the uh, room. And of course, Jack McCall, fortified by um, uh, liquid courage and cruelty, uh, comes in and shoots Hickok in the back of the head. Hickok is at that point holding what is later known as the dead man's hand. And at the time, 
uh, Dead Man's Hand was not that. It was, I believe, Jacks Over Tens was thought of as a Dead Man's Hand. I guess the theory being that it's a hand that would, you know, make you eager to bet, and then you would be beaten by someone who had something better than Jacks Over Tens. I mean, that seems like a pretty good hand. Right. But but then a more literal version of a Dead Man's Hand came along. Right. Then then that got swapped out. And uh, as I mentioned, everyone is an errant liar. Uh, The general understanding is that what Hickok held was aces and eights. And for poetry reasons, when uh, someone wrote a book about this uh, case, or this case, this this moment in 1926, they said that it was all black because that, you know, ace of spades is the death card. And so you have the ace of clubs, the ace of spades, the eight of clubs, the eight of spades, and the queen of clubs. But there is lots of dispute as to what the kicker card, the whole card, the card that was down, the aces and eights are out because they're playing stud. In actual life, when a very famous person's head is blown off at your card table, your first instinct is not to check and write down the composition of his hand. Right, is is not to write down the whole card. There is a uh, version that was uh, allegedly picked up by one of the gamblers and then left to his son, the, the actual cards, and this set of cards that either were authentically or artistically stepped on and bled on. Um, and I like the idea of someone who has a bunch of cards and is like, well, I got to bleed on them. <laughs> Come here, boy. I, I, I'm an errant liar and I'm going to yes. prove it by bleeding on these cards. <laughs> right. And that's the ace of clubs, ace of diamonds, eight of clubs, eight of spades, queen of hearts. And, you know, on the sort of biblical uh, exegetical principle of the more erroneous, the more likely it is to be authentic because you'd have smoothed out all the errors. Maybe, you know, that is the the real one. And we added the all blacks to make ourselves feel cooler. Other versions have the whole card being the Jack of Diamonds, the Five of Diamonds, the Nine of Diamonds. So in a cult sense, this hand has basically bought the authority of being the dead man's hand by blood sacrifice, by Wild Bill Hickok's brains being all over it. And then the existence of the whole card is that, you know, and this is where um, Ian's mention of unknown armies comes in. That's the the element of randomness, the element of the unknown, the Schrodingerian quantum reality is that whole is, is what was the, the face down card. And then you could imagine a whole campaign not set in 1876, but maybe in 1876, where a bunch of, you know, sorceress cabals are all trying to retroactively make the whole card a given thing. And they're trying to, you know, get to this guy, Christy, who picked up all the cards, or maybe they're trying to get it from somewhere else. But, you know, what that card was is somehow indicative of the destiny of, well, probably not of Wild Bill, but the destiny of Deadwood or the destiny of America or the destiny of, you know, card magic or something like that, that it, that piece of knowledge is a vital, you know, device you can use to close the circuit. So I guess we should at this point maybe mention the TV show Deadwood, which while uh, nobody's ideal of narrative concision does at least introduce a lot of fun characters uh, that you can populate your game with and also sort of sets out the social conditions in Deadwood's Dakota territory at that time. Deadwood, as I mentioned, is a gold boomtown. The gold has been found in the Black Hills, which are the sacred hills of the Lakota Sioux. And the (laughs) Sioux are being chased out of the Black Hills at this very moment by the U.S. Cavalry so that uh, gold miners can, you know, uh, drill holes in their sacred hills. Skyquakes, 
were always a phenomenon that were noted over the Black Hills. This was noted by Lewis and Clark. It was noted by other travelers in the area. And that, of course, is mysterious, you know, shakings and boomings in the sky. That, of course, is, you know, your statospheric entities, you know, bending their faces down. That's things that happen in the Black Hills have more significance than things that don't. There, there was a guy who was, uh, I don't know what you call him. Let's call him an anthropologist um, named T.H. Lewis, who went all over the Dakotas and that area and looked for uh, weird rock formations, because this is at the time when people are finding uh, not just Stonehenge and stuff in England, but they're finding things like Medicine Wheel in America and noticing that uh, there's plenty of cool rock formations. And he notices that in the Dakotas, there are enormous laid out effigies of uh, giants and that they're basically drawn with boulders, sort of like the Nazca lines are drawn uh, so that they're visible from higher up on the hill um, or the Uffington white horse or the chalk giant of Cernavis, that kind of thing. And that these are all over the Dakotas. So again, you have an indication of stratospheric interest in the area and of the uh, medicine men of, of the Sioux saying, yeah, we know that these guys exist. We're placating them with these giant images so they don't mess with us. In 1869, the first ghost dance movement happens. That's in Nevada, but the emissaries of that movement spread into the Dakotas. So you uh, have and explain to people what the ghost dance movement was. Uh, the ghost dance is a apocalyptic millenarian belief that if you perform this magic dance exactly correctly, all the dead Native Americans will return, the buffalo will come back, and the white man will either just all die of a plague, or the world will literally flip over. And they'll be squashed under the world and uh, the uh, Sioux will, will survive or the Paiutes or whoever's doing the dance uh, will survive. So that is sort of the, you know, spiritual component as the old ways are being destroyed that the, uh, the, the Sioux and the uh, other area nations are undergoing. Meanwhile, the American nation is in the middle of a gigantic depression, which is part of why people are flocking to the Black Hills to uh, drill for gold. Uh, the Northern Pacific Railroad has gone bankrupt, so the rails stop midway through what will become North Dakota at Edwinton, the future Bismarck. Uh, gold is discovered actually by the army in the Black Hills in 1874 when they're riding around trying to separate uh, homesteaders from the Sioux Indians. And uh, the army discovers gold, which is literally the worst imaginable outcome for the Black Hills and for the uh, Sioux. And then they have the Sioux War, which is occurring literally at this moment. Uh, Little Bighorn, Custer getting riding into an ambush and getting massacred by Gaul and Crazy Horse. Uh, that happens in on in June of 1876. So basically, you have a, a drumbeat of events. You have the Sioux War, uh, Little Bighorn. You have Wild Bill Hickok arrives. Wild Bill Hickok is shot in August. Two days later, Seth Bullock, who becomes sort of the the local excuse for the law, since Deadwood is illegally on Sioux territory, there is no actual law there. Seth Bullock is the closest thing that there will be for a bit. Once they start having elections, he repeatedly loses the election for sheriff. Um, our old buddy Al Swearingen, he's there. He's operating out of a tent. He later builds the gem uh, next year. And then a smallpox epidemic uh, tears through the place in uh, August and September of 1876. And that, of course, can be a magical plague caused by the ghost dance, or it can be um, a vampire uh, getting loose in the town uh, under the cover of smallpox. Oh, there's two weird pustules. They must be smallpox. And then, of course, the great 
American hero Wyatt Earp shows up in, uh, in October of 1876 and discovers, first of all, he's too late to get a claim to mine. And second of all, there's no law in the territory, so he can't get a job as sheriff, which is what he sort of wanted to do. So he spends the winter hauling wood for uh, mining camps. Right. So if you wonder in Deadwood why Wyatt Earp shows up and doesn't do anything, it's because that's what happened in history. history. Historically, that's what happened. So in 1876, you have a lot of big characters. You have a lot of weird magical background. And then depending on either if you want to prefigure things or when I ran my Unknown Armies Western, we ran one scenario per year so that I could, in fact, move from, you know, high point to high point as opposed to setting the entire game in Tombstone, which I could have done. Uh, in 1879, Saul Utter, uh, Hickok's friend, digs up his body to move him to the new cemetery, and they discover that his body is turned to marble. It's been petrified by runoff from the gold mines, and when I hear Wild Bill Hickok has been turned to marble, I immediately think, well, that's a Tim Powers vampire that is going around doing stuff. So if you have not read The Stress of Her Regard and Hide Me Among the Graves, Powers' uh, historically informed literary vampires, I feel like, you know, bringing one of them into Deadwood is is not a terrible idea, even if you're playing Unknown Armies. I think it'd be good fun. And then, of course, our buddy, uh, your friend and mine, uh, Ambrose Bierce, briefly has a job as the um, site manager for a uh, gold mining company in Rockerville, which is kind of nearby. It's a different mining site than Deadwood. And he travels back and forth to Deadwood in uh, the summer and fall of 1880. Uh, in 1881, there's a mysterious ice fall from the sky. And then 1883, Calamity Jane dies and her ghost is seen. So there we are. That's what I was able to dig up for Elliptony in Deadwood in the 1870s and thereabouts. So I feel like that's that's not unrich as as a single spot. And then obviously, again, you've got all the characters that um, uh, that you got to see do nothing at great length in Deadwood. Right. And if you add vampires and monsters to them, maybe those characters will do something. Well, yeah, sit up. Instead of having a season where nothing that happens in the season finale couldn't have happened in episode one. So uh, I guess there's also uh, the possibility of having the dead man's hand show up in later set scenarios, whether that's the thirties in trail or uh, the sixties in fall of Delta green or the present day. And that can then be a thing where, well, what, whatever you decide the dead man's hand is, whichever one seems to be most numinous, which is not necessarily the one that was actually in Hickok's hand when he died is the one that you try to deal to people when you're trying to kill them at the gambling table. Mm -hmm. um, another, you know, lesson that the fable lesson, the moral of the story that we draw from this is don't be afraid to be a jerk when someone's sitting in your regular seat. Yeah. And uh, it could also be that, uh, you know, it's, it's not the cards per se that uh, create the, the doom magic, but rather the position that he was at in the table. And so it may be that, uh, you know, everybody knows not to draw, the dead man's hand when they're playing magical poker. But does everybody know not to sit at the particular spot at the table that, right. uh, that Hickok to, to sit at, that at, at three o'clock on the table or whatever. Yes. And um, the weirdly symbolic card game does show up a lot in Western history. My favorite example is that uh, Virgil Earp, Ike Clanton, and a number of other people, including Sheriff John Bean, that became very, very important to the gunfight we're playing poker all night 
the night before the gunfight at the OK Corral in 1881. So what was that about? That was a magical duel, clearly. And maybe it was about Virgil Earp trying to force the dead man's hand onto Ike and Ike trying to force it back onto Virgil. And then they're like, well, we can't settle this at the card table. Let's settle it out at the, the back lot behind Fly's photography studio. And that's what happened. Uh, yes, because it, it's not that poker was the main thing that people did in those days. It wasn't that it was basically video games. It was that it's all Newman. Exactly. It's all, well, it's poker, uh, for gosh sakes, Robin. It's speaking all magical of, combat. Speaking of uh, Tim Powers, obviously, if anyone listening to this has not read Last Call, that is Tim Powers' game about magical poker, uh, played with a tarot deck, which this, of course, was not. The cards that uh, Hickok used were perfectly ordinary cards. Ask the Mr. Christie, who has somebody's blood on his set. <laughs> Right. And of course, uh, people who uh, play poker or follow that scene know that it is a game of complex mathematics and revising statistics in your head uh, as you go with life and death stakes. Of course, uh, it is uh, numerology. It is the Kabbalah mm -hmm. lying underneath the, the poker game. So that could be the uh, system that is uh, running the magic that determines uh, the fate of uh, poker players. Uh, then and now. Yeah, and again, you can look up what the numerological values of the cards are, and uh, since you have your sort of your choice as to what the whole card is, you know, it can pretty much be anything. and Or you can have two possible solutions to the equation of the dead man's hand, and those are your factions. So maybe uh, the Queen of Hearts is uh, the vampire version, because it's the red blood, the, the, the red queen and the um, uh, undead. And the queen of clubs is the human version. It's nope, everyone's going to die. That's just fine. And then the various diamonds are in there because people are like, well, we got all this death magic. We got a gold mine. Shouldn't we be making money off this? And that's where that comes from. Right. And if you're uh, running a Western game, whether it's Haunted West or Unknown Armies, you could determine what your canonical dead man's hand is and tell the players, each of you is one of these cards. And so this is the party composition it's the Ace of Clubs, the Ace of Diamonds, the Eight of Clubs, the Eight of Spades, and the Queen of Hearts. You decide which of them you are, and you decide why that determines your identity and what uh, extra magical ability that gives you. Yeah, and again, you know, the, there's the same reason that uh, Wyatt Earp would ride around with five guys, right? That, you know, he was a poker hand. The, yeah. the Earps and Doc Holliday were a poker hand. Same with your crew in uh in in haunted west you're you're a poker hand. perfect number of player characters for a campaign exactly uh well uh, now that we've assorted the true numerological significance that it's a it's a gaming group <laughs> it's time for us to hold our uh, uh beaver stetsons in the air wave them at those poor souls who are only wearing nutria stetsons and uh ride on out uh, for another week Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from drawing a fatal card by chipping in alongside such Stetson-wearing backers as... Louis Sylvester. Luke Silburn. Martin Rundqvist. Matt. Matthew Baskerville. And Michael Bowman. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Put on your best faces with our latest design. Ready for my close-up, Mr. Pickman. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>